0: Who's the best-known up-and-coming VC in Australia? Arguably, it's Jessie Wu. This week, we sat down with Jessie and had a very wide-ranging discussion about all things branding, her contrarian takes, upbringings and controversy. We then segued into exploring the Australia venture capital landscape, talking about fund returns and afterwork story and comparative advantage. Enjoy this conversation. Before we dive into this week's podcast, we'd like to give a quick shout out to the first ever sponsors of the and Adam show. We're influencers now. (laughs) So this podcast is sponsored by Recess. And you could easily skip this ad, but I don't think you're going to want to.
1: So Recess are one of the great upcoming Aussie startups. They're a few uh, young guns who are developing and designing furniture for your office and for the home as well. They're making ergonomic chairs, uh, sound booths, uh, workstations, a whole sort of range of things. And hopefully we'll have a few chairs soon to show you as
0: well. It says have helped hundreds of Aussie startups, including well-known ones such as Eucalyptus, Afterwork and Leica, as well as large enterprises like Mervac and Westpac.
1: So we've got pretty horrible furniture. All
0: (laughs) our guests say it.
1: If you want better furniture than us, you should go to recess. (laughs) The chairs are nearly breaking. So we've got a discount code for you. If you use Sachin and Adam, you'll get 20% off for your next order, whether it's for the office or for your home. Um, And if you want to get a full fit out for your office, just hit us up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we'll help sort you out.
0: So show recess some love and now we're back to the show and we're live. Hello and welcome back to the Sachin Adam show. Now, today we have a guest that we've probably wanted to get on since we started the podcast. Jesse Wu is one of the most well-known people in the Australian startup ecosystem and we've got so much to dive into today.
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of young people in the ecosystem, when you think of like a sort of VC that you're looking up to, someone that's young, striving, really up and coming, Jesse Wu is the person that you think of. Um, from the sort of LinkedIn post, doing a lot more media, all the brand building that you're doing at after work, it sort of feels like you're on this like really, really big come up at the moment. Um, and, and it's really sort of exciting to witness.
2: Flattery will get you everywhere,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and obviously people see a lot of what you do online. You're very sort of vocal um, and you love to sort of call out people and you're, you're really quite bold. And I'd love to sort of unpack beneath all of that. What is it that drives you at your core, would you say?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, and thanks for all those kind words. I think in terms of what drives me, perhaps I'll go back to my childhood. Um, So I was born in China, and I lived there until I was about six years old. What part of China? um, In Shenzhen, which is, uh, some people call it the Silicon Valley of China. It's, um, for those who don't know, it borders Hong Kong and um, has become a little bit of a tech hub. Tencent is located there. Um, So that was where I was born. And, um, And when I was a child, I loved uh stories and i loved coming up with these fantasies that i would implore my grandpa to write down for me during the day and then we'd um sit on the balcony and we'd watch um the buses to to see when my mum would come home from work and i remember when i saw her i would run down the stairs with these pages of writing that my grandpa had written down for me and i would kind of bounce along her and say you know do you want to do you want to hear what i came up with today um so that was a real source of joy for me when i was a kid and then we immigrated as a family to new zealand when i was about seven years old and suddenly my love for words and storytelling um, was imprisoned within my incomprehension of the English language. I would go to school and I would lo- know so little few words relative to my peers. And I remember that I only knew 2 multisyllabic words that I was quite proud of. I knew tomorrow and I knew butterfly. So I would just write a one-sentence story every day. I would write, you know, Um, tomorrow I'm going to see the butterflies, the butterflies will be here tomorrow. Um, And uh, I felt so acutely the way in which words are our window to having a voice, to being heard, to being able to influence other people, and that the lack of those building blocks um, can, can be such a powerless experience. So in time, I I learnt English um, and I I really loved it as a subject and I actually went on to study English and philosophy at university. But I think that's been a thread throughout, which is um, that with having a voice comes the ability to nudge the world in a direction that you want to see it go and also giving other people a voice or giving people the building blocks to give articulation to something on their minds um, and cent- re-centering voices that have traditionally been sidelined or marginalised um, is a way to bring more people um, into a place where they have power and the ability to influence the world. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how it all comes together for me.
0: I think that fits in with a lot of stuff we've been discussing recently, <laughs> right, Like and I think we both have a thesis that everyone has this something to share with the world, right? And a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't found that creative outlet. You found yeah. yours through writing, others maybe through art, through Definitely podcasting, nice. through all these different okay. things. And I think you articulated it really well. But just taking a step back for a second, you talked about all these stories that you would kind of show your mom in your childhood. Mm-hmm. Do, is there any themes of these stories? Were they idealistic about the world? Like, you know, as a, as a young person, or is there anything you can remember psychoanalyze <laughs> right now, Sachin? <laughs> yeah. You know
2: what? Um, I think a lot of them are quite fantastical, you yeah. know, as kids' stories are. But I think something that really stands out is I would get so excited when I learned how to n- write a new word or spell a new word that I would then try to shoehorn it into every ah, story. Cool. So um, especially Chinese characters, they're kind of quite hard to write. Yeah. Um, s- and you have to practice writing them, I guess. So when I learn a new Chinese character, I'd be like, this is my favorite thing to write. <laughs> I'm going to write it all the time. Um, so in a way, I, I do really love um, just words as units of existence. I mm. think they're really fascinating. Um, I post a lot about etymology, even yep. though it has nothing to do <laughs> with my job. Um, uh, so that's one answer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love that idea of trying to weave in characters that you're fascinated with. It reminds me of like founders when there's a big trend going on, like <laughs> Web3 is going on and they yeah. try and put it into yeah. every, like all the exactly. website, the thesis. I'm interested, have you ever felt like an outsider or is that something that's influenced you because you came from China, went to New Zealand, to Australia, and you had a pretty different educational background as well. Philosophy and English, I wouldn't say that's typical of a VC or someone working in tech. Do you have that feeling?
2: I think certainly growing up as a migrant um, uh, and quite a kind of, you know, a visible migrant as, a, as opposed to maybe someone who immigrates from Britain or something like that. Um, certainly felt like an outsider, certainly felt like there was a kind of social hierarchy um, that I wasn't, um, you know, that I was, like, lower in because of, of um, um, like, not looking um, and, and sometimes speaking like everyone else. Um, I think in terms of do I feel like an outsider – um, because of what I studied at university, I would say, probably not in my in my current job. Um, my two colleagues, Alex and Adrian, um, studied kind of pure maths and theoretical maths. So um, that's also a little bit left of field. Um, and there's also lots of very visible examples of people in VC who um, really have a point of pride that they studied mm-hmm. something other than economics and finance, like Jack's um, studied history. Um,
1: so you mentioned that hierarchy felt quite visible to you. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, is there a connection there that you might feel like you're more willing to challenge that hierarchy because you saw that sort of as a younger kid and now in VC you might see a v- hierarchy that you might be trying to push against?
2: Yeah, it's a really insightful observation and maybe I haven't connected that those dots before, but I think perhaps when you um, are quite cognizant of your place mm-hmm. within a power structure, that becomes a more salient lens through which you see the world. Um, And these power relations become more evident to you. Um, So, you know, linking it to the kind of engagement or or the rules of engagement um, and, you know, when I judge it to be appropriate to call someone out um, or challenge something they've said in a public forum... I think previously I've called it punching up um, and limiting engagement to people who are punching up, but I think perhaps a more nuanced way to think about it is um, a tug-of-war rope and feeling like there's enough tension in that rope to pull on it. And that tension is partially a result of whether they have power. So what's an example of that? Somebody who has power might have the ability to have a lot of influence um, on the people around them or indeed society at large um, through merely the things they say in in terms of that shaping norms within an organisation, within a broader culture in which they have influence. So certainly a a founder, a CEO has power. Um, A a partner at a VC fund might have power. The media has power. Um, And so... That means that when they say something, they are providing tension at the end of the rope. And I think it's productive to then tug on the other end of the rope um, and uh, and have that be kind of an equal exchange um, of, of influencing things in one way or another. Um, maybe a counter example is, I don't think that gaffs and fumbles and slips of the tongue um, Create tension at the other end of the rope. Like if someone misspoke and you pull on the rope and they fall over, like what have you actually proven that yeah. that we're all human and we all slip up at times? And equally, I think punching down um, on on somebody who um, is you know just just starting to make their way in life, um, they are also not providing enough tension at the other end of the rope. That is a kind of fair dynamic if you tug on the other side.
0: Yeah, I love the way you've kind of thought about and deconstructed it. And we're going to segue into branding now. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Do you think you have power?
2: Yeah, definitely. And Um, and
0: as that power has grown over time, like I know you have almost 8,000 followers on LinkedIn now, which isn't synonymous with power, but you're gaining influence and your voice is being heard and a lot of your posts go viral. You know, how have you thought about the way you comment on things with this newfound quote unquote power?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that discursive power, soft power, that is like a salient form of power, absolutely. And I think that um, you're right, as I've gotten a bigger following um, and as people look to me to be something, um, I have um, been quite... I've, I've felt the need to be considered um, mm. in terms of the kinds of things that I wade into. Um and I think that uh, it's, it's a good thing to be kind of calculated and considered, think about the power relations at play and um, walk away from most, from most you know, potential controversies or scuffles that you could engage in.
1: Yeah, and I think like that leads really well to just asking how you think more generally about branding as well. Um, sort of for yourself, but also for Afterwork because you've obviously done like really tremendous job with both of them and a big focus of Afterwork is that they've got this sort of unique at times sort of like slightly edgy, like really modern Um, branding and I think it's just interesting to think in the context of the ecosystem is that like when you have a reputation and a track record you don't really need branding so much because you've got these really strong networks people sort of trust you but when you're an upstart and you're doing something different you need that branding element it's a way of differentiation so how do you think about that
2: yeah a framework that I think about is um, the idea of resonance now resonance actually comes from this notion that if you have two things and they're vib and um, they're vibrating at the same frequency. They'll actually make a, a noise. Um, that's kind of how piano keys work. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you play a chord, the corresponding chord um, will actually gently vibrate as well. So I think I think about resonance, all about dialing into our frequency um, and you know, dialing that up and trusting people who are tuned into that frequency will hear it and will resonate with it um, because it's being tuned into something that's specific to them. Um, how, how do you find your own frequency? Yeah. Ooh, how do you find your own frequency? I think um, if you ever, what are some leading signs of yep. your frequency? Perhaps if you're riding and you get into this flow state, Um, Right. And it's just like it's almost your fingers on the keyboard are just this medium and it's just pouring from your mind um, to your uh, to the page Um, or or similarly when you're speaking. Um, I think that sometimes when you write things, you're like, oh, I've just cobbled together things that other people say. This is a little bit phony. This is a little bit contrived. Um, and then some things you're like, actually, when I read that back, that really speaks to something within me or that gives voice to something within me. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite wrapped <laughs> by yeah. my own. Right. <laughs> um, I think those are maybe clues that you found your frequency. Yeah. Um, and then just trusting um, that your audience is intelligent, that your audience is discerning um, and uh, not bullshitting them. Um, So I think Acquired Podcast uh, does a really great job of this and one of their mottos um, from the very beginning is that they treat their audience as highly intelligent, more intelligent than them. So they don't dumb anything down for the sake of their audience. They give uh, their audience that intellectual respect and they've gotten a cult following as a result of it.
1: Yeah, interesting. I think that's something me and Sachin are trying to learn about a lot now, like the sort of creative process of finding your voice and expressing that. Because there's like a sort of moment when you can be too analytical and you're sort of reading lots of other people's information. And as you said, you're trying to put it together and find your own voice. But it really comes from like a sort of sense of clarity and space within you where you feel like you've got to express something. I think we're reading a lot of creative books at the moment, like reading about Rick Rubin, his new book, A Creative Act, reading Green Lights by Matthew
0: McConaughey, and thinking about how to like find something that's really, really innate to you and really personal. I found that piano analogy fantastic and I'm going to think about it a lot. Um, And as Adam said, like something I've done is I've stopped listening to all in podcasts and you're kind of just for a month to trial out and replacing (laughs) it with, with something different. And it's like coming back to that, how do you get to like thesis led thinking and how do you stop regurgitating the same things as everyone else? And I was going to say when you, when you were speaking about your kind of philosophy of branding, I think a perfect example post is your commentary on, um blackbird and the link to etymology and and the commentary <laughs> around that like that because that was your kind of zone of genius you may say because that's stuff you've studied before whilst linking it in in the kind of a, a non-consensus way but also something that was really novel so i think that kind of pieces together a lot of things you're saying
2: well, thanks for saying that um no you guys are very kind um yeah i think it's great um to wean yourself off <laughs> the dominant discourses like mm. all in because it probably looms too large um, and I agree like it's hard to separate out uh, what you actually believe <laughs> versus something yeah. you read in a tweet thread and are now just regurgitating so I'm yeah. um, almost uh, yeah going off that a little bit and be like what's actually what do I actually believe is a really
1: Mm. So I,
0: I just imagine you like debating <laughs> podcasters in
1: your head really <laughs> Exhausting, yeah. <laughs> yeah but to that point i think the independent insightful ideas you can't just like structure time in your calendar and be like i'm going to come up with three of these they do come out at random because we've got these like ideas ruminating maybe in our subconscious and you see some sort of stimuli and all of a sudden it's like boom like they all yeah. sort of come <laughs> yeah, together definitely. and you write some content um and yeah going on on from branding, we had an interesting question on your sort of post on LinkedIn uh, relating to the fund sort of dynamics in Australia. And Max Marchione asked, if you had $1 million and you had to invest it in Australia, um, you can't invest in after work and there's no minimum sort of check size. Where would you be investing this money?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, so if I had $1 million to allocate to a fund and the aim was to try and turn that million into, you know, as many millions as possible, I think... Um, before I get to the answer, I'll, I'll share some framing. Mm. I think um, with a small amount of money like 1 million as opposed to 1 billion, um, it's you're optimizing for multiples rather than absolute returns, right? Um, so I think if I were trying to optimize for um, multiples on money returned, I would err towards steering away from really big funds, the ones that have nearly a billion dollars under management.
1: That's essentially just like a law of physics in investment, right? People sort of talk about this as that as funds grow, the multiples, they just compress. Is that you sort of aligned to that?
2: Yeah, and I think there's a, you know, you can spell out a few reasons why they compress, right? Um, One, in terms of the absolute value, if you're trying to turn... One billion dollars into five billion dollars, you need to create four billion dollars of wealth in in Australia in tech within an eight year time frame, and that's just a really high um bar, right? You and that means that you need to find those outlier um, power law companies, and um, and because you need to optimize for outliers, you make a kind of bet where there is uncapped upside but actually pretty high execution risk. So if it goes well, then this could well be the next Stripe or Coinbase or Canva. Um, but the chances of success are actually kind of low.
0: Why um, execution risk as opposed to other forms of risk, like technical risk or market risk?
2: Sure, th- those as well. I, yeah, okay, okay, gotcha. I-, I think where they don't try to take risk is market risk. Mm. So it's like the, t- the TAM is large enough. Yeah. Um, there are enough p- prospective customers um, but where they're willing to take a lot of risk is, um, yeah, is technical risk, um, is, uh, yeah, garden variety execution. And we're talking risk. about large funds here. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think, so, so one, like, because of that, um, large funds, harder to get really high multiples. Um, but two, I think large funds, because they make these kind of bets in, um outliers the one where if you invest in one it can redeem 99 mistakes that you made i think that's something that nick crocker said on on your last podcast it also means that you're actually missing a lot of opportunity to invest in companies that maybe have like a a 500 million dollar outcome on Mm -hmm. the table that's actually quite feasible Um, but but has a capped upside beyond that, maybe could never be a $50 billion company. Mm. And that's where I think that funds with quite um, with quite specialised strategies actually have this real opportunity that these big funds, because of how they're structured, aren't set up to capture. Um, so a fund that really stands out as knowing exactly what it's doing and doing it really well is EVP. Um, uh, they are a B2B SaaS-focused investor Um, They are uh, series A and beyond. They might do a late seed. They don't touch things that are kind of pre-product, pre-revenue. They're very tight on tracking all of the leading signals of product market fit and kind of scalability and a repeatable sales process beyond that. They have investments in um, SiteMinder, Deputy, um, and Henry some ones that people might have heard of and they are a, a really a really great team that is um deeply thoughtful about sass metrics and SaaS, SaaS playbooks and really good at um honing in on a kind of series a stage company that is spring-loaded to go on a trajectory that they've seen other companies go in and um i think they've explicitly said on some podcasts that they actually don't really agree with the power law as the central tenant of VC, Um, this notion that you're unicorn hunting all the time. Because in Australia, particularly population 26 million or so, um, there are a lot of companies that have a very salient path to becoming a $500 million company, a $1 billion company, and if you get in at the right valuation at entry point, that can be a hundred x for you. Um, so they are more disciplined around valuation. They um, and they invest in kind of boring, you know, infrastructure plays or um, or, or yeah, enabling plays um, that maybe doesn't excite the big players. So I probably put half my money with EVP, um, and then uh, I think. Uh, A really exciting fund that has just come to market is um, led by Maxine Minter. She is – she'll be the solo GP and um, the fund is called CoVentures. It's a $5 million fund, pre-seed only, and her um, insight is that there are all of these great uh, Australian founders – Um, With, you know, Australian networks, because that's where they've had their careers, but their business is really more suitable to be funded by US investors because of what Australian investors don't like to play. So Australian investors don't like to do much consumer, they don't like to do hardware, maybe with the exception of Blackbird, um, they don't like to do much like health tech Her insight is, can I invest in these founders doing things that are global from day one, not a good fit for the Australian appetite, Um, invest the pre-seed to get them started and get them to a degree of legibility where I can then introduce them to my networks over in the US um, and find the natural funding partners for them. Um, So she's very focused on this being her alpha, what she brings to the table, and I think a lot of people who need to get started but know that the U.S. or global is their natural place to play, um, will really find resonance with her. So I put half my money there. Yeah. Wow.
1: That was um, that was really structured and very insightful. I like how you analysed all that. It seems like there's going to be this sort of bifurcation of the funds where you've got like these – a few like really large ones with a few billion dollars and then you've got these like really sort of small differentiated ones. And I think that's like a sort of future VC um, trend that we're seeing in the U.S. as well. And for the big funds at the end of town, do you feel like there's going to be sort of enough companies for them? Because we see like companies like EVP that are very targeted, smaller funds for like the Blackbirds of the world. If you're trying to deploy a billion dollars of funds, all the trees or Square Pegs, do you, do you feel like there's like a sort of enough in the Australian tech ecosystem and enough growth? And it would be interesting to hear your commentary on that as well, Satch, and as someone at Airtree.
2: Do you want to go first, Sach?
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, the fact that Blackbird has raised a billion dollar fund from very smart money and investors is a sign that there is enough. And I think that part of that play is making sure that like the parts of the ecosystem that involved in creating more entrepreneurs, I think they have some great top of the funnel programs to encourage people to start those companies, right? Like you can take a kind of a stuck in time view and say, hey, if we look back, there's been one or $2 billion companies start every year, or you could take a proactive view and say, hey we need to invest a billion dollars and and also keep in mind that 700 or 700 million of that is follow-on capital so it's not like net new capital um but you can take that proactive stance which is like hey let's create an ecosystem where we're producing enough companies so we can deploy this fund right and i think that's what we're trying to do and that's where everyone's going to move towards i think it's a wait and see um we, we never know but i think like personally, I see so many promising signs in the Australian ecosystem. So many young people are considering startups over your typical corporate jobs, which wasn't seen when these funds last raised. Um, so yeah, I, I think I hope so.
1: I think something I'll just like hit back at that is that like when you look at funding cycles for different like investment industries, this is this especially in like real estate, like commercial real estate, a lot of like the big funds that raise, it's not actually in reaction to demand. It's just in reaction to like how easy you can get money and like mm. sort of get bank loans. Mm. And so I do question if that, that is the same as super funds. Yeah. It's like whether that's, like there's these sort of trends, they see like lots of other funds coming in. They, mm. they like see a sort of good past track record yeah. or whether they've really thought about like in uh, whether
0: there's going to be enough demand for that capital as well. I think that would take like a 10 year view to make sure that like there's kind of mechanics in the ecosystem return the fund. But then again, I don't know that much about super funds, like intelligent mm. processes.
1: Mm.
2: I think a way I think about it is that the big three funds are almost the market makers for big ambition um, in Australia and New Zealand. And when I say market making, um, there's kind of a concept in vaccine development where, you know, vaccines take so much R&D, billions and billions of dollars to, um, to, to design and bring to the market and go through the clinical trial process um, there's of an obvious social need and social benefit to having vaccines developed for um, you know, diseases that continue to impact a lot of people. But these vaccine developers, these pharma companies, also need the kind of guarantee that if they design something to specifications, that there will be a buyer. And how we've resolved that kind of catch-22 is governments around the world have actually market-made vaccines. So they've said, you know, we need a a vaccine for polio, just to use that as an example. It needs to meet these specifications. Whoever meets these specifications and passes, you know, clinical trial safety standards first will give like $20 billion to buy like, you know, 200 million vaccines of them. Um, And that creates the certainty for these uh, pharma companies to invest, you know, tens of billions in dollars of doing that. The way I see it is that these big three funds, and look, kudos to Blackbird, because I think they do the most of this, um, is they've said, here is a huge pot of money that's available to people who have sufficiently big ambition. And they've, you know, screamed that message from the rooftops, they host events like Sunrise, um, they talk about building Australia as a creative nation. And, and that means they get people like you, Sachin, and, and, and like um, you, Adam, to, to decide to stay in Australia and build your careers here, because you know that there's no cap how big you can go Mm. Um, and and that might be resonating with a high schooler that might be resonating with um you know someone who's quite technical who's who's in a safe job at a corporate and um and that's where it starts and i think it actually will probably take as you say years or decades to to bear fruit Um, but uh, I think that's the role it plays. So it, it, it's great that, it, that it's um, happening and those three are t- leading the charge.
0: Yeah, and, and I think what's clear in this conversation is that, you know, every fund at every size, I think it's clear to me, has a role to play in the mm, ecosystem. Like yeah. you mentioned EVP, and I'd love to bring it back to Afterwork now mm-hmm. and, and kind of how, you know, you've thought about Afterwork's role in the ecosystem and the branding of Afterwork
2: yeah for sure. So um for any listeners unfamiliar, afterwork came to market um, you know properly in about March of 2021. Um, and our point of differentiation is that we were a community powered fund at the time. We were a motley crew of about twenty five people who would dial into these calls on Sunday evenings to discuss startup opportunities that we were seeing. And then when we made investments, we would send founders a a Rolodex of these 25 people. And we'd say, you know, um, Anna Chang can help you with growth marketing. and um, TIFF can help you with financial modelling. So with just one line on your cap table, that's the size of a standard angel check, 25 to 50K, you actually get access to this whole um, group of people who are also indirectly invested in you. So That was the kind of MVP of Afterwork. Um, since then, we've uh, raised a kind of professional-sized um, fund. It's just over $20 million, and that's allowed three of us to work on it full-time. So myself, Alex, and Adrian. Um, And I think as we've uh, evolved over the past two years and had the ecosystem evolve alongside us, we've probably sharpened two beliefs that I think are perhaps where we zag, where other funds are zigging. Um, And I can go through them in turn. So I think one belief is that high conviction requires a time series. So high conviction is, um, you know, what drives people to have the confidence to deploy like a big check relative to the size of the fund, bet 10% of their fund into any given company. Um, And we believe that that amount of conviction requires you to get a kind of 360 um, degree view of how somebody engages and interacts um, and, and, you know, what they're able to move forward on their business and how that business starts to go over probably like a 12-month period. Um, and, and that you can't get to that same degree of conviction in like a four-week due diligence process because there's people can pretend to be someone they're not in a four-week um, process, especially if it's all virtual, especially if it's all like a business meeting, um, whereas people probably can't sustain that for a year. Um, and also uh, also getting lots of like data points from different kinds of people on how somebody is engaging and, and, and thinking about the problems that they're running into builds this really rich view that gives you confidence that they can navigate future curveballs um, with grace and poise. Um, so how that links to our model is our initial check is relatively small. Um, They kind of start at 100, go up to 400K. Um, And then we, and we make a relatively large number of these. I think we'll probably make 40 to 50 of these initial checks from this first fund. And then we bring that person into our community, into our platform. We say, you know, here's a group of 120 people now who all want to see you win. Um, Here's what all of their superpowers are. Um, And, you know, please feel welcome to reach out to them as if each of them were angel investors. Um, And then when uh, founders go ahead and do that and then we get that information fed back to us, it gives us this really rich view um, of what somebody is like as a founder, um, how they solve problems, how resourceful they are, how diligent they are, how disciplined they are um, and you combine that with you know the usual stuff about how the business is tracking. Um, as observed through metrics and you know their their investor updates and your monthly catch-ups with them and you bring all of that together into um, something that allows you to make that high conviction decision so our um, follow-on checks are one million to one and a half million dollars which which is you know nearly 10 percent of the fund in one company Um, so that's that's one of our kind of ways of operating
0: a question on that and i think that's fantastic because a lot of small funds do the opposite right like they try and get as much ownership early because they know they'll get diluted down the track mm-hmm. would you kind of build in like super pro rata considerations for those one to million, two two million dollar checks i can see how the community would help that and second question is is do you think that with the size of your fund with those one to two million dollar checks do you then kind of consider valuation at, at those kind of next check levels? Because I'm trying to I'm trying to see how that kind of fits in with the fund dynamics.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, look, do we try to kind of like put super parada rights in the terms? Mm. Um, we haven't to date. I think we've relied on us getting the right to super prorata yep. um, by being first believers um, mm. and the place that you have in people's hearts when yep. you're the first believer and the first maybe fund um, to back them cool. um, and also through demonstrating the value that you bring. So in the times where we followed on, we have been able to get super prorata, awesome. um, but not because we put it into the terms. Yep. Um, that might not always Yeah, continue to be the case and we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves there, but that's how we've done it so far. And in terms of valuation discipline, look, I think, um, you know, going against uh, something that, that Nick Crocker said, I do think valuation discipline is important at every stage of investing. Um, you know, if you invest at a 10 million versus a 20 million, that means to get 100x versus 50x, you need only half the outcome. Um, and it's probably easier to invest at... 10 get to one bill, then invest at 20 and get to two bill. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we do think about valuation. Um, we are not going to be sticklers necessarily and, like, negotiate between five and six. Um, but we probably will let deals pass us by um, if they are valued really high relative to the stage
1: Mm. And so you mentioned you really try and develop a high conviction approach, but at the same time, you're also a first believer. How do you try and gain that conviction when you're coming to a company really, really early? And like, obviously, you'd love months to do diligence, but you might have that shorter time period. Are there anything that like really pop up to mind about how you gain that conviction?
2: Yeah, yeah. So look, not all of our first checks are necessarily... As high conviction yeah. as our follow-on checks, um, we're kind of buying the opportunity to build a relationship. Um, but in terms of how do you get to sufficient conviction on the first check, I think um, you know obviously there's the things that will VC say, so I won't I won't say them again. Um, but maybe some things that are aren't said as much we really look for organisational discipline, which is around does somebody run a tight ship. Um, Let's say when it comes to fundraising. So um, do they have a kind of really great mastery um, in their minds of the moving components of their business? And are they able to speak to them um, in the requisite amount of detail Uh, in terms of how they run a process? Especially if they're a sales-led organisation, the fundraising is a form of sales, and you'd hope that they're running that fundraise process as if they were running an enterprise sales process, right? So it's like, are they following up quickly, providing the requisite amount of detail um, in response to questions? Um, Are they... You know, when, if, if they follow up, are they following up with um, with kind of new information or something that really, um, you know, sparks FOMO? Do they run a tight process in terms of talking to a lot of the funds at the same time um, so that they can pit them against each other, so that they can limit the amount of time they spend on fundraising? You know, those are probably all leading signals that, um, that they run a tight ship, which is, I think, a great... Uh, heuristic to whether they can get from pre-seed to
0: seed, especially. I love that. But w- w- the counter to that would be they're spending time building their business instead of focusing on fundraising. What What's your kind of thought there? Because sometimes when you have an over-engineered fundraising process, it may be diverting the founder's time from raising the business. So is it kind of the thinking there that, hey, let's run a tight ship, get to a check as fast as possible, and then kind of go back to what we're doing best?
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's about clarity, right? Yeah. So at a given time, fundraising might be the most important thing in yep. the business insofar as let's say you have, you know, six months of runway, like you and and you're you're losing money every month, which which we'd expect from most startups, it's probably the most important thing you can do as a CEO yep. um, to get money in the door. So it's about can you be clear about what's the most important things in the business and focus the right amount of energy on that versus are you kind of scattered and trying to do all the things in your business at once and not doing a particularly good job of any of it.
0: And and you mentioned this sales process and running fundraising like enterprise sales. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good place to segue into kind of founder storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the common consensus is that storytelling ability is one of the most important things as a founder because it can help you with recruiting fantastic people onto your team, but it can also help you with fundraising. And we've heard a lot of VCs talk about storytelling as a superpower, What's your take on this?
1: And I think it's, like, important to note as well that from, like, an outside VC and startups perception, for, like, the ordinary person looking at the tech industry, there's been a lot of storytellers that have duped them as well. You think about the Adam Newmans of the world, Elizabeth Holmes. Mm. From an outside-in perspective, I don't think storytelling has the best sort of reputation as well. There are obviously authentic, like, sort of Steve Jobs that are great storytellers, but there's a lot of sort of frauds that are great storytellers.
2: I agree. I I agree. Um, I think that storytelling is a really important skill in a CEO precisely because it's such an important um, enabler of those functions that you said before fundraising hiring selling um, and motivating your team like making people feel like they're working for a purpose outside of themselves that there is going to be great personal upside on the table um, for them that they're doing something that makes an impact and and it, for a late-stage CEO, I think those kind of become the only important things in the role because we've probably been able to hire for you know, a CFO, a COO, a head of product. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to early-stage VC, um, over-indexing on how a founder's story makes you feel, especially in that first meeting, can be giving into to um, what Daniel Kahneman on Thinking Fast and Slow calls systems one thinking, which is being very guided by your intuition, your emotional response, um, which is clouded by you know, particularities of, of your past and um, experiences that you've had. And I think allowing systems one thinking to dominate systems two thinking, which is the more effortful, slower Um, more logical, more considered reasoning and basing your investment decisions on systems one thinking um, too much is pretty dangerous because, uh, you know, as an English um, major, uh, there's also lots of ways in which stories can confuddle, it can gloss over gaping plot holes, um, it can um, misdirect, it can Uh, draw an arc that points towards an inevitability that your mind is composing without that necessarily being a certain outcome at all and it can make you feel as an investor almost bad for asking um, asking questions like okay no, like actually, let's stop here and talk about how this business really creates value. Um, and let's talk about things like CAC to payback, and let's talk about things like unit economics. It can almost make you feel like a Debbie Downer for <laughs> taking for going away from that story that you, sweeping you off your feet.
0: How do you do that at pre seed, though? Mm-hmm. How do you do that at pre seed?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think that you can ask questions that uh test. The thinking. The coherence of the business model. Yep. Right. Like you can be like, um you know, even unit economics, you can be like, draw out for me how this is profitable at a unit level, or if not immediately, when it becomes so, and if that's okay. And you need you can't answer that with a story, right? Yeah. <laughs> you need to answer that with some numbers.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that something to note here would be that Storytelling is often synonymous with signals as well, because signals can tell a story. Mm-hmm. And a lot of work we've been doing at Air Trees: how do we kind of divorce signals from story as well, and make sure mm-hmm. that we're not leaning into signals too much mm-hmm. to make those kind of system one thinking bets, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how how do you think about like the signals of a founder when you first meet them versus like how, how do you how do you weight those two things in your mind?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's really important to do both because. Um, A founder, particularly a kind of CEO founder, needs to be able to captivate when they come into a room, right, right? Um, for the reasons of those functions. So I think it's important not to completely um, uh, not consider um, those things, but I think uh, some founders are just not as caught up in selling a narrative they're very technical and they have a technical insight that's specific to a kind of boring vertical specific problem that they've encountered um, in the construction industry Um, and it's probably really important to know when is the time to bring in a subject matter expert who's maybe experienced that same problem Um, and be like is this a salient problem is it genuinely unsolved would you would you pay good money to solve it Um, rather than form your own view too quickly Um, and that's one of the ways in which the community comes in for us we have these 120 people who've experienced different kinds of problems um, and uh, they have a network that's even broader than them so we try to find the customer persona rather than making a snap judgment based on our own experiences
1: yeah and i feel like this is sort of related to the broader topic of like how do you be a contrarian investor because obviously as an investor if you want success over the long term you can't just think like everyone else and especially being so early like you you don't always have those sort of signals to follow or you can't sort of just like see where all the other funds are going as well. Like you've got to make like very early decisions and often decisions where there might not be other funds following on for quite a while. So how do you think about sort of thinking differently away from the pack?
2: Yeah, and I think it's a real conundrum of the Australian ecosystem that we have these small funds um, that can write these initial checks. Maybe they can write a follow-on check, but they're probably tapped out after that. And therefore, um, that opportunity needs to become sufficiently consensus to a larger fund that they can actually follow that capital. So you need something that's maybe contrarian for a short period of time, maybe one round, maybe two at most, and then you need it to become consensus, um, which is difficult. Um, I think the large funds have the luxury of being able to be a capital partner for many, many rounds. Which means they can back something um, that seems crazy until that moment where it's like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it's a it's it's a it's a paradox um, of small funds. I think being guided by customer personas, particularly those that aren't kind of engaged in the you know cut and thrust of VC, um, like. Going out there and talking to a farmer about an agritech solution. Going out there and talking to like a project manager on a construction site about a piece of construction tech. Um, they will help you cut through the noise and systems one thinking of our industry and get you to um, a point of clarity over whether there's something that is
1: needed. Mm. And I guess that's like a unique sort of competitive advantage Afterwork has because you've got this large community. You can actually tap. Tap into that subject matter expertise, like you said.
0: Is it bad that when you said pharma, my brain went to Mark Andreessen's um, Twitter handle (laughs) instead of an actual pharma? (laughs) P. marker. Yeah, yeah. I went to pharmaceuticals. (laughs) 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 Um, Different interpretations. So, so Jesse, there was kind of a tweet that circled last week around VC Associates, and you had some kind of back and forth dialogue on it. We'll, We'll dive into that in a second, but I'd love to ask from your perspective, you know, what makes a good investor... And what kind of background do you think makes a good investor? And, and, and I'll provide a bit more context. So Chamath actually did a, a study of pitch, pitch book data recently, and he saw that a lot of the best venture capitalists actually come from commercial backgrounds and not those typical founder operator backgrounds that I think the industry loves. What's your kind of thought on this? And also what's your kind of thought on um, the, the dialogue around young VC associates <laughs> right now?
2: Mm, yeah, I think two separate questions. I'm not going to pretend that I have a definitive answer on what makes a good investor, but I think quite quickly, um, the value that a VC brings uh, to a founder, especially, you know, a serial founder um, or a seasoned operator become founder, is that we have a bird's eye view of a lot of companies, right? We just see a lot of pitch decks in the door. We are privy to how our portfolio of, you know, 50, in your case, like 70, companies have um, fed where we, we, we have a sense of, like, this is the metric that precipitates product market fit, um, and therefore you're able to apply your understanding of the generalities to a specific case. And I think that's the way in which VCs can bring insight to the table because they've seen how it's gone at other companies and they also see which ideas have been attempted a lot and um and where the bodies in the idea maze might lie um so you know i can tell you uh every month i think we get four pitch decks around tinder for friends Mm. um so i can tell a founder that like
1: i've got a friend that's working on that as well it's like tinder (laughs) for trends for like people that are traveling
2: (laughs) right and i think you can you can then shortcut to like here's a few ways that um these other tinder for friends haven't gotten the traction they need initially is it because tinder is tinder for friends is it because um you know network effects etc right so that that's one way we can bring value just because we've seen a lot of pitch decks um and equally um you know let's say it's seed stage as opposed to pre-seed so a little bit more metrics um you're trying to ascertain how strong product market fit is you can give them a bit of a framework which is like These are the like quartile benchmarks of product market fit. um, And this is what we've seen and this is how to think about that. So I think that's how investors bring value. Um, And I think that that means that even if you're a seasoned operator um, and you've like led a specific function, um, quickly the experience that you have of growing a function within a specific company at a specific time will probably be overtaken. By, um, by the value that you bring as having this bird's eye view. Um, I think that uh, certainly if you've been a founder before or you've operated a business before, you might be more attuned to um, like, operational aspects of the business, you might have more empathy, Um, you might have uh, really great suggestions about resilience and stuff like that. Um, But I think that investors are probably not meant to be mentors, um, are probably not meant to be operators within a company. Um, are probably at best meant to be coaches, which is around being a sounding board and helping people find the resources and creativity within themselves to solve problems. So I think that somebody who's been there and done that, um, it's not necessarily directly core to the way that VCs, I think, should add value.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think there's a lot, a lot of sort of humility in that as well about VCs. They can't necessarily be everything and they can't just be sort of someone that can stand in and be like an operator in a company as well.
0: Yeah. So, and I think there's kind of obvious reasons why founders don't like VCs from particular backgrounds or initially are suspicious um, around those more kind of commercial backgrounds. But I think the dialogue is going to change over time.
1: Yeah. Um, should we go into the quick fire now? Yep, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So for our quick fire round, we're sort of bringing it back to the personal like we usually like to do. And we're going to ask you eight questions and there's going to okay. be okay. Yeah, <laughs> quite a few and you've got around 30 seconds each to answer sure. them. Yep. Um, are you ready for that? Yeah. Cool. First question, what's one of your favourite books and why?
2: Oh, um, I really love normal people. <laughs> um, why? I think that... Uh, you know, she, the author. Um, it's about it's it's a romance set in um, at the University of Edinburgh, and I think it's just a really raw um, and resonant uh, piece of writing about that really special transitional time in people's lives where you're blundering, you're fumbling, emotions are running high, um, and yeah, it just really hit me.
0: I read that in a night. That's my guilty secret.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what's a podcast that you've listened to recently that you really loved?
2: Yeah, a bit of a stereotypical answer, but I, I do really love the Acquired podcast. Yeah. Um, I'll give a bit of a different answer. I really love Chat 10 Looks 3, um, which is the Annabelle Crab and Lee Sales podcast. Okay. They're like two best friends, um, uh, you know, very um, successful figures in the media, and they just d- discuss, like, their favourite books, um, recipes, um, little things they've heard around the grounds. I just find the interactions between them really delightful. What mm.
0: speed do you listen to your podcast on?
2: Just one. Nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've got friends that
1: listen to it at six times speed and they're just crazy robots. <laughs> um, if you could meet one sort of historical figure that you've obviously never met, who would it be?
2: Maybe Trotsky. Mm. Um, yeah, just I think really interesting how he got so intentionally erased Mm. from the narrative, (laughs) like literally photoshopped out. Um, And I would just love to uh, know what has been quite intentionally removed from history books.
1: Mm. Yeah, he's an interesting character because he's like the sort of philosophical influence of him is just so huge and the effects of that because obviously he was erased, but he was literally like the ideology behind the whole sort of revolution and the Bolsheviks. Um, what's one of your favorite hobbies outside of work?
2: Oh, um, I love walking around in nature, listening to podcasts.
0: Cool. Yeah. Very <laughs> tech answer. <laughs> um, when is the last time that you can remember that you felt really happy?
2: Yeah, uh, like quite recently, I think. Um, went on a really lovely trip um, to Hobart over New Year's. Cool. Um, and yeah, I just love Hobart. Like really amazing food and wine, and um, they had a bunch of Things on um, during New Year's as well. Uh, there was a New Year's Eve concert featuring Daryl Braithwaite, um, the Horses guy, yeah. and everyone just was absolutely champing at the bit for him to play Horses. <laughs> and then when he finally did at the end, he like literally didn't even have to sing. He just like turned the <laughs> mic over to the audience, and everyone Cute. sang Horses.
1: I feel like you've got a bit of a pointed opinion on Hobart, suchin. Yeah, I, I was there at the same
0: time, <laughs> oh, okay. but um, yeah, I think I you know, I think Hobart's a great city for like food and wine and maybe when you're with a partner but I was with like a friend and like found a bit sleepy but we're there for hiking we're in Tassie for hiking that was a complicated way of saying he's quite unsophisticated (laughs) (laughs) exactly um what's a great physical product that you've purchased in the last couple of years
2: Oh, so really excited um that we have this meeting room being installed in the office on Tuesday um it's a six-person meeting room that is able to be dismantled and therefore moved to wherever you next go. Um, and it's made by a company called Recess. We have one of their phone booths called Nooks, um, which uh, all of us have spent a lot of time in, and I think it's been the thing that's stopped us from um, you know, driving each other up a wall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. What's one of your favourite words, and what is the meaning of the oh word? Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: well... The etymological fact that's my favorite that I always love to talk about is the notion that passion and passive come from the same root word, which is partior, and it means to endure. Mm -hmm. So I love this notion that passion isn't necessarily about, um, you know, this joy per se. It's also about the willingness to endure and to suffer Um, And that's where the Passion of Christ is originally referring to.
0: That's That's so interesting. Wow. I think I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, So, And last question, if you could send a text message to everyone in the world, um, what would it say?
2: Yeah, so the thing that, comes to mind is amorfati but that's in Latin, so everyone will be like what <laughs> spam <laughs> but what amorfati means and there's no perfect translation is to kind of i mean literally it means to love your fish but i think what it's gesturing towards is know that everything that forms the tapestry of your life they're not even for a reason but is there And to, like, love and embrace that as being the thing that precipitates the next great thing that you're going to do. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I'd send that message, but I guess I'd have to figure out how to translate it in a way that people (laughs) understand.
0: That's wonderful. Um, Yeah, well, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. I think that was a fantastic insight into the mind of an up-and-coming VC investor and kind of a commentary on the ecosystem as a whole. So, I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, that was really fun, and uh, your knowledge aboard
0: is second to none. Yeah. So congratulations <laughs> yes. on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks no, for really coming enjoyed on. Enjoyed the conversation.